Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode number 306. My name is Brando, and if you're watching this on Zoom, I am coming to you virtually from Cantor's Deli. I'm sure you can tell that I'm not really in Cantor's Deli with the terrible green screen that Zoom gives you. However, our guest today is actually in Cantor's Deli, Mr. Mark Cantor himself. What's going on, Mr. Mark? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. It's been a while. I know you do a lot of uh, interviews, especially with the 51st gigs, but we had you on a long time ago with, with Jack Lou, who I know has helped you with this project. And uh, you guys have been friends for years. So that was a while ago. So it's cool to get to talk to you kind of one-on-one -on -one and kind of take my request. Can you, can we zoom from the Guns N' Roses booth? So thank you for sitting there for me. There we are. Uh, there we are. Guns N' Roses booth. <laughs> oh, you know what? See, I got to, I can change now. I'm going to have fun with my virtual background so I can actually pretend like I'm part of Guns N' Roses. See, now right. I'm, in the, I'm in the Guns N' Roses booth now too. I put on that famous photo of, uh, <laughs> It's like I'm really there. Or, or, or I, love, I love that technology. That's the, the technology that we're that you're using is the same thing. The whole reason why we ended up doing this podcast is because it's here. The technology has, has really moved forward in the last few years, so it makes it it makes it a lot easier to get things done. When we were putting Reckless Road together, we talked about doing. Uh, part of the deal was to do a book and also a documentary, but documentaries are very expensive and you got to fly people out to interview them and, you know, uh, equipment and rental for, you know, it, it ends up a studio time to mix it and, and edit it where a podcast could just, you know, the, this last year of COVID has really speed sped things up and everything's going on, you know, on zoom these days. So we found that what makes it great is if we did a great documentary, what would it be two hours long? If you do a podcast, it could be 100 hours long. You know, each episode is like 30 minutes, 28 minutes, whatever. And you nothing, there's no edit. Yeah, a little bit gets on floor because those interviews are about an hour long. And then we end up using 30 minutes. But in a documentary, you would lose 90% of it would be on the cutting room floor. So this way you get more tidbits of, of, of what information somebody, some editor may think is useless information that information a fan would love to know about. So uh, it's just more thorough. That's a good point. How many movies or TV shows or podcasts, they, they, there's something that comes out, like the things that are left out, the extras, the, the deleted scenes. And you're like, why was that deleted? That was great because they have to fit into a certain time. And with podcasting, you're right, which is why I've spent you know over 300 episodes talking about one band. I don't know how that's happened, but... <laughs> You're, you're absolutely right, and, and, and smartly so. So I guess what was the first catalyst? Because I wasn't doing Zoom interviews before the, the, um, the pandemic. So it was when everything shut down, I guess. You took time, and what can, what, what can I do now to be creative? With, with well, yeah, all if you watch the news at all during the pandemic, which I'm sure most people started watching the news more, uh, you'd see that instead of having their guests in the studio, they're just at home or, you know, 
somewhere else. And, and, and it just became, it, at first it was like, okay, that's the best they can do because of COVID. But now COVID's over, and they're still doing it. So, right. well, it's not, but it, it's, you know, it's settled down, things are open. But so it, it, it shows you that the world has evolved a little bit and, and what's acceptable. And what, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. We're talking, you see me, I see you, we're all good. So it, it, it just makes it nice. I mean, there's so many tidbits. We could, I could tell you so many stories that nobody knows we're going to talk about. And you decide when we're going to talk about Slash's audition for Kiss, which everyone's going to say, what? I never heard about that. And if you ask Slash, he might even say, what? I don't remember that. Because I once was in an interview with Slash and I brought it up and he looked really confused. But uh, we'll get to that. But uh, uh, there's just little tidbits. Also, Slash was in a Michael Shanker video. Nobody knows this. Uh, he played a dead Jimi Hendrix on stage in the song Rock Will Never Die from 1984. Got paid 75 bucks to do that. Uh, it was out in the valley somewhere. And we didn't know it was a Michael Shanker video. We got called. He got called. He got casted for that. Uh, to play a, Jim, a dead Jimi Hendrix. And I drove him up there and we were trying to figure out what band it was. And then I saw Macaulay uh, and I walking around. I thought it was Ted Nugent. So I said, I think we're in a, Ted, I think you're in a Ted Nugent video. I was so confused. And then all of a sudden we saw Michael Shanker and then I figured it out. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's cool. That's so there's, there's little bits of, of information in these podcasts where we can dig a lot deeper. We originally did reckless road which is my Guns N' Roses book, Making of the Appetite for Destruction. Mm -hmm. This put out in like 2008. Uh, the pro when we first did it, it was my scrapbook of all, you know, covers the first 50 gigs, photos, uh, flyers, ticket stuff, you know, clippings from the magazine, ads from Bam Magazine, whatever, just mostly that. And then there's, you know, what we, we transcribe what they said between those shows because I recorded all those shows. That makes it fun. You know, you, you hear, you see they're about to play Rocket Queen and Axel says, this is the new one, it ain't much, but it's the best I could do. This song is for Barbie. This song is called Rocket Queen. And it's just more powerful because if that's your favorite song, now you know where it debuted and what he said before he announced it. And it just gives you a little bit deeper. It gives the fans a little bit extra uh, i wish somebody would have done this for aerosmith because i'm a big aerosmith collector it would this would be a treasure trove for me if i you know to to get this information it's also good because even if you're not a huge fan uh, guns and roses fan but you're a fan of music and, and how bands get put together this is a good this is a i mean i have the access on well i was there with slash the whole time but i also can access the people that I know that the world has forgot about. And like Chris Weber or Rob Gardner, who was, you know, Chris Weber was the original guitar player in Rose and Hollywood Rose and wrote with Izzy and wrote with Axel and, you know, th they lived in his house. So you're getting a perspective of, of, a, of a, someone that was there and how it, how they felt watching that evolve and go to the next level and to the next level. Same with Adam Greenberg, who is the drummer for Titus London Road Crew. And you'll see that he talks about how he knew it was only a matter of time because he could see that Slash was at, you know, seven levels ahead of him. And even though it worked for what they were doing, he knew that Slash would grow out and move on and, you know, do whatever. So you get you, you get these perspectives of, of not just one person telling the story or not just a band, even though it's important to have the band member tell the story, because of course they're the celebrity, they're the ones that made the music and you want to hear what's coming out of the horse's mouth. But unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunate. Unfortunately, sometimes 
a lot of time has gone by a little too much alcohol of you, you know whatever and they get it some of these things are blurry and they don't really weren't paying too much attention to the details and they don't they even get their own books uh, they try they don't do it on purpose they try to get it right but they mix stories up and they mix dates up and they're a year off or the wrong place or the wrong venue or you know things get twisted a little bit uh but when you hear it from the people that were only there for a year and their their life stopped in in the music business they remember that as if it were yesterday because that's all you know was just you're only asking them to remember one year you're asking these guys to remember 35 years of, of, of rock and roll so it's a lot harder sometimes uh, it, you know we did interview slash duff and steven when we were putting together reckless road we did it on video and 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 but we you know we transcribed what they said in the book it was really for you know to fill in the book but also it was for the documentary that we never made so now that we're doing this we could you know if, if something comes up in that subject matter we could cut back to their interviews Stevens, we redid because he wasn't in the best shape back then. And we, we have an episode that Stephen did live with us uh, about a month and maybe six weeks ago. Hmm. Uh, and we might get him again because it it, uh, there, it took us a long time. We were having Internet problems and by got set up, we only really had like 15 minutes to interview him. And then he had to go do some a business meeting. But so it, it didn't all go as planned. But still, I can, we can continue it. It's a short episode. It's not a big deal. But so that, that's what we're, you know, that's what we're focusing on is, 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 oh, I didn't, I, I got sidetracked my own story. So my plan was to get this book while they designed the book. Let's see what space, because there was a little bit of, of information I gave you what was going on between the shows around that time or, you know, just what was going on, where they were living, what was going on. Uh, and, you know, like for instance, oh, okay, so. I was then going to look to see how much room I have and look at this book and look at the page spreads and then make some comments that weren't in the book yet. But because we interviewed like 20, you know, people like Tom Zutad and, uh, you know, Mike Klink, who produced the band, the, the, the album and, and the Rodies and, and some, you know, had a piece of that or were involved in it some way. Uh, Steve Thompson, who who uh, helped mix the record, everybody's got good knowledge to add in there. So by the time they added that all in, the book was overfilled, and there was not one smidget of room to get one word in there. So uh, that being said, I didn't get to tell these little these little tidbit stories that of information what was going on. Like I'll just throw one at you now. Uh, 1984, when a st when when Slash had met Axel and they were. Uh, just, you know, in Hollywood Rose, uh, fooling around for about three months. He was working at Tower Video on Sunset. And uh, he didn't, he was basically homeless, but he would find someone's couch to live on, a friend's couch, or even, you know, maybe if he couldn't stay on the couch because the, the you know, the girlfriend or whatever didn't want that him, him hanging around too long, they'd let him sleep in the car, or he'd hook up with a girl and sleep there. But every now and then he would strike out. And if he struck out, and it came two, three in the morning, nowhere to go. He'd go to Tower Video and sleep on the stairwell. And so he, he told me right around that time, his goal, he set this goal, was to get a gym membership. And if he can get a gym, not to work out, but so he could have a place to shower, no matter where he slept, even if it was in the back of someone's car, you still need a shower. Now, if you slept at someone's house, you could always use their shower, but that wasn't always the case. So that was the first bar that was set. <laughs> so that's, 
these little tidbits of information didn't get in Reckless Road. And now with this podcast, it's endless. I could get any little de detail I want in. And besides that, I don't have all the information. I just have some cool stories to tell. But, you know, like I said, we found earlier, I was telling you that we found Rob Gardner. We didn't have, we couldn't find him at the time of making Reckless Road. The internet wasn't as well, not everybody had, I don't think Instagram was around then. Right. Or what, if it was, it was, I don't think it was. But anyway, maybe there was MySpace. Who knows? Uh, but uh, there might have been a Facebook, but not everybody was on it. So we, I was looking for these people, couldn't find them. And uh, actually, I found Tracy Guns, but he didn't want to participate. He was kind of ghosting me uh, because he wasn't sure. You know, Tracy staying quiet back then, and he didn't go out much. He didn't do much. He wasn't sure. He didn't trust people. But later on, I actually met at a at a a memorial service for a mutual friend. I think that was like 2010, maybe. And he apologized because he got my messages and he apologized for ghosting me. And he said, if, you know, he'd help again. Uh, the book was great because it, it's not anyone's opinion. It's actual facts. You know, it's, it's an encyclopedia of facts put together. And, uh, and it, it just, you can't dispute it. It is what it is. That's what it is. That's what happened. So, he said he'd help, but now we're, we're looking for him again. And he's, he's gone back to the ghosting, but we contacted his management management said he was booked for the next year. So that's, I don't know. That's a podcast takes like what, 20 minutes to do, but uh, whatever it is for every reason doesn't really matter. Cause uh, we did get. I think you're seeing Raz yeah, you slowing down a little bit. Uh, it's it's yeah, so he, funny with yeah. Zoom. Zoom. Sometimes it's like it's a it's like a drive through. You're not getting drunk. I understand. And I will no. say with Tracy, he he's very responsive on Twitter and in doing my podcast. Uh, obviously, I wanted to speak with him as well and said he would not do podcasts. And then I see him all the time. And then I, I can't reveal how I got in contact with uh, L.A. Guns manager. Well, we spoke on the phone and he likes me. So apparently Tracy, maybe in, uh, actually you're supposed to, they said October. So I got to follow up with my, my interview with Tracy guns. Maybe, you know what? Maybe he isn't going to ghost me as well. I'll let you know. Well, no, I think once he sees these, there are like four episodes out. Plus we're doing bonus episodes. Once he sees these, he's going to feel more comfortable and, and I'm sure he'll be, he'll contact me. Oh yeah. No, he's uh he's very cool. I think cause, you know what? Just like the reason why we had a little conversation before we started recording, there are just a lot of interviewers out there or podcasts out there that just want salacious stuff. And, you know, he was in Guns N' Roses for, you know, he was in the the, the for, found, like, formation foundation of it, but he's still making L.A. Guns music. So I guess, you know, if all people want to talk to him is about Guns N' Roses still since 1985, I get being annoyed by it. But no, he, he brings it up. He brings it up. He tweeted. He no, he tweeted something about a month ago. Say he found an old picture. Actually, he took it from he took it from one of the podcasts uh, that we put out uh, an ad, and he said, "If nothing else, we, we did start some shit or something like that." <laughs> so he, he's 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 obviously aware of it. But I I, I think when if, if he's not comfortable, that's cool. I mean, I remember Tracy and Izzy. It, it must have been at the time they they put that together because see it when. When see Tra Tracy was always a rival of Slashes, and and um, even though Tracy had been playing for like six years before Slash even picked up a guitar and he was really good at it, 
uh, Slash got to his level real quick. You know, Slash was a quick learner. And you can't help it, but they're rivals because he was in Pyrus and Slash was in Titus Sloan. And, you know, mm. they're, it's, they're rivals, but they're, they're friends, but rivals. But so when Hollywood Rose fell apart, what did Axel do? He joined up with Tracy. And that was like a, you know, that was like to Slash. That was like when I went to help them take do some, Axel called me after that and asked me if I could shoot LA guns for, you know, and get some photos. And I didn't tell Slash because I didn't want him to think that I was betraying him because <laughs> I was also friends with Axel. I had, even though they were together only three months, I made friends with Axel at that time. But uh, that only was a short lived. There was only two gigs and then that fell apart. But they all kind of knew each other. And what I can remember, and even though I knew Izzy back then, because Izzy actually left Hollywood Rose the minute Slash joined, they were like together for one rehearsal and then he just disappeared. Izzy disappeared and joined London. But uh, um, what I do remember is Izzy coming into Canners with Tracy and Tracy lived a block away. He lived literally one block away. And uh, so they would come sit on the counter and drink coffee. And I, they were working on music. Not they didn't have their instruments, but they were like writing and maybe, you know, making melodies and, you know, just writing. And I'd, sometimes I'd stop and talk to them for a little bit. And that was must have been right around the time that that Guns N' Roses started because Axel had already, you know, Axel had already joined Ellie Guns and it fell apart. So why it fell apart, I don't know. But I, I what I make from it is because, uh, you know, Ellie Guns got staled for a minute. Maybe they still need, were looking for a singer. And, you know, they asked Axel to rejoin. And Axel was all, oh, if I join you, we're just going to fight again because you're in charge of that band. And, you know, and if I join Hollywood Rose, we're going to fight because, you know, Axel's in charge of Hollywood Rose. And, and um, maybe we should keep our bands and start a side project that we're all just all together in charge. And there's really no one's in control. And we'll just, you know, we'll record some music and we'll, we'll have some fun. We're not going to take it too seriously. So that's how Guns N' Roses got together. And, and the fact that Tracy was in Canners riding with Izzy, I'm willing to bet you that was probably January of, of 85 and the start of, of Guns N' Roses. And so that was like, lasted like four months because then Tracy and Rob left. So uh, by the time the Appetite for Destruction lineup got together, it's not like they were all strangers because Duff had actually joined Road Crew for a week. You know, he answered an ad, an ad that Slash and Steven put in the Recycler, LA Recycler, and they actually met at Canners here because that was a good neutral place. And um, Duff didn't stick around because there was no singer and they jammed. They might have actually, believe it or not, worked on, on some riffs that ended up in, in Rocket Queen uh, that just fell apart, you know, at the time. And so they didn't leave on They didn't leave. Duff, Duff didn't leave because they didn't get along. He left because he he didn't think, you know, it was ready to go yet. It wasn't a band that had a singer and ready to just, you know, Duff was ready. He already toured with, you know, punk bands and he was not... He didn't want to start in the middle of a band, although he knew Slash was a great guitar player. He, it just only lasted about a week and they kind of Duff moved on. But long story short, that when, when, when Slash and Steven were asked to join um, Guns N' Roses, when Tracy and Rob left, this was the end of May uh, of, you know, 85. When I got there to see what was going on, uh, Duff was there and I'm like, oh, hey, I know that guy and I already knew Izzy from a year before. And of course I was friends with Axel. And so it's like, okay, we know everyone in this band. This is kind of cool. And then 
what changed it all, and I, I swear to God, what had to make it work was Izzy and Duff stole one of Steven's bass drums while he like went to smoke a cigarette or went to the bathroom out of, out of the rehearsal and like hit it. And that, that, that solidified it because before that, Axel I knew was great, but he was getting, first of all, Steven on double bass drums was the same as Cozy Powell. It was, you think you're listening to Rainbow Rising. It was just insane. Uh, and it was loud. And so it was it was the kind of songs they were writing were for that. And it, you know, Axel screaming and, you know, it's good, but you really can't hear it. And and sometimes a song would slow down through a chorus or something. And it's like, oh, there's Axel. Uh, but this time you hear Axel great. And the, and Steve, because he stole one of those bass drums away, he, he totally turned into like this funky bass. I mean, drummer. He, that wasn't Stephen before. Stephen was just, you know, those, those feet were moving. So everything slowed down. You know, they had Don't Cry, which Slash was not involved in, but of course that Slash does guitar solo. But uh, that was like, you know, original. They had Think About You, which I didn't hear before. I already knew about Anything Goes. That's what sucked me in in the first place to, and Slash to even be interested in Slash trying to get together with Axel. And uh, Slash actually met Izzy while he was working at right here where Genghis Cohen is now, it's on Melrose and Fairfax. There was a music store called Hollywood Music Store. And Izzy came in there because he, there was this drawing that Slash had made for me for my birthday of Aerosmith. And it was a really cool cartoon. It's actually in the last page of Reckless Road. Mm -hmm. It actually started out as just a Stephen and Joe drawing. And a year later, he took it back and added the rest of the band, which is kind of tricky to do if that wasn't his intention, which it wasn't. But anyways, I'm getting, I keep changing stories, but uh, it's all good because there's just so much information but it, it's kind, kind of important where, because yeah. Izzy walked in there looking for he heard the guy that made that drawing works there and he was looking for a copy of it so that's that was Slash's first brush with, with um with Izzy and even though they didn't hang out or jam together or anything you know they can see each other were cool and that they, they you know they there was some kind of image going around just looking at each other and it's I don't know 100%, but it's very possible that Izzy might have said, come check out my band, I'm in Rose, or something like that. Could have been, maybe even handed him a demo tape. I don't know. I, that, I'm just, I think that's how we, because somehow we did get a hold of that demo tape, and I remember listening to it, and I don't know how we got a hold of it, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating that it was at that meeting. You know, it's like, here, here's my tape, check out my band, or you know, whatever. But it, now I'm going to tie. I, mean, I am going to jump stories for a second because now that we brought up that music store, that's that. That's where we're going to tie in a Kiss story. Okay. So the owner of that music store, his name was Hiro. He was Jap. He was a Japanese guy. And obviously, when there's no one in the store and you're working a music store, you're going to plug a, a, a guitar into an amp and start doodling around. Well, so it didn't take Hiro long to see that Slash knew what he was doing. And even though nobody knew that Ace Frehley had quit kiss he was aware of it because he was in the industry and he knew that kiss was actively looking for a guitar player so he recommended slash for the job and but also there was some red flags there because slash was only 17 at the time it was in 1982 and slash was actually also working a business card clock for six dollars an hour and um we knew that Paul Stanley was going to call like at two in the afternoon or something like that. So I was there with him that, when that call came in and I couldn't hear what Paul Stanley was saying, but I heard basically the answers that Slash was giving. And I was like, yeah, I could pull that off. Yeah, I could do that. 
I think so. Yep. I could. Yeah, I could. You know, so afterwards, I asked him, what did he ask you? Oh, would you be able to tour? Could you record? Uh, is your parents cool with it? You know, that kind of stuff. And uh, I think he got spooked because, you know, he didn't want to take on the liability of a 17 year old. But so we never heard back from from him. But had he would have scheduled, like, let's just say Slash was 18 at the time. I'm 100% sure he would have scheduled Slash to, you know, learn three songs and come play with the band or whatever and see how it goes. You know, if Slash walks in the way he looks and Slash had a good image of him back in 82 and uh, just heard, pl you know, plug in an amp and, and let Slash rip away and doodle around. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that Slash would have probably been picked for the job. And so that's kind of a story that gets left behind. And here's there would the have been no Guns N' Roses, right? Guns N' Roses would have happened. Would, in my opinion, Guns N' Roses would have happened. Even though it, uh, when Tracy and Rob left, they probably would have found another guitar player and, 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 and maybe even got Steven. Who knows? Um, but and there's a lot, you know, between Izzy and Axel and, and, and Duff, there's a lot of good songwriting talent, you know, capability there. But you don't have Paradise City. You don't have Baraka Queen. You don't have Jungle. You don't have Sweet Child. You, you're right. missing a lot. You're missing a lot. And also, Izzy would start a lot of songs and Slash would would funk them up a little bit and add to them and was influenced by them. And, you know, so he would he would uh, we'll call it decorated. So sure. No. Season again, it's okay. It's like live rock and roll. No. <laughs> on their we're, getting, own. we're getting every other word. That's okay. Paul Stanley definitely told this and what he told you about and and, and, and you had a phone interview. Then he might remember, but he doesn't realize that it was Slash. Nobody has ever went back and said, hey, you know that kid you were talking to? Because at that time, it was Saul Hudson. It wasn't Slash. Slash changed his name until 84. So okay. I don't know if he's ever... How could James, how, how could Paul Stanley possibly remember that story? But if somebody kind of walked him through it, he might say, oh, yeah, I, I do remember that phone call. Wow, that was Slash? Somebody. That was Slash? Wow, because if I'd known that was Slash, I think we could have worked this out by getting his parents to sign off on this and, you know, get the lawyers to drop the papers. Because obviously, you know, there is rock stars that are kids uh, that, that, you know, look at Michael Jackson, look at all those other kids that are able to, you know, function in, in, in a touring world and, and not worry about, you know, you know, the liability. But so anyways, I thought that was just a, a, that story never got added because there was nowhere to put it. So right. that I, 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 there's a lot of things like that that are important that I think are, are could have changed, you know, that's like a sliding door in rock and roll history. How do you retain all this information because i am lucky i know what i had yesterday i know what i this morning for breakfast i'm lucky i do but obviously you have so much of a documented now in the book but and you have their photographs that you had the wherewithal to take early on but do you just have that kind of steel trap memory to like i i do have that memory for certain things but not for what i need them for like in school i was never good no matter what how i studied i'd be very lucky to come home with that c or that c minus so it was you know i'm a little but i'm also a little ocd so uh the ocd is what drives you to to do things certain things thoroughly and leave no stone you know, like I bet you a good hitman is probably OCD because they'll stop <laughs> week and see where you eat, see where you go to the gym. I'll find the best time to get you. But uh, you you map things out. So what you know, I when I when I first met Slash, I knew he was a little different than most people. He wore 
moccasins. He he dressed differently. You know, he, he had a real talent for art in school. I noticed with those like art projects, and, uh, when it was, you know, I'd write something with a bunch of stick figures and he would draw this really cool animated, you know, jungle of dinosaurs and snakes crawling through trees and the dinosaur would have a dimple. And this is not traced out of a book. This is just him freehanding it. And, and 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 he'd sketch it out like a street artist, you know. He'd just boom, 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 and there it was. So you knew he had some talent. But this was in 1976, so nobody was. We weren't, even though he came from a music background, his parents, we weren't listening to to music. We were we were just you know hoodlums riding around on our bike doing things and you know stealing shit and whatever, knocking trash cans over. Um, you know, we lost touch for. Uh, a year because he got kicked out of the uh, John, uh, John Burroughs junior high school and was put in Bancroft, which even though it might only be a mile away, it's just, you know, it, you lose touch with people. So you're a kid, a mile away is 10,000 miles away. I got a it. mile away. We, if we were in the cell phone days, you know, or that we would have never lost touch, but we lost touch. And, um, a year later we bumped into each other again. And, uh, I was wearing an Aerosmith shirt. He was wearing a Zeppelin shirt. So here we are. We both got into music on our own. And uh, I said, oh, hey, what's up? And he says, oh, I, 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 play, I play guitar. I'm in this band, Titus Sloan. Instinctively, I knew, oh, I, I missed. We were riding bikes. And when we were riding bikes, he was doing things that you'd see in X Games today, but they weren't really doing in 1978. He was a little quicker, a little stronger, and he did more outrageous. And so when he'd go off a jump at a race, flashes would go off when other people go up a jump nothing would happen so everyone knew he was the he was the, the you know he was bringing the attention but okay so let's get to back to this when he told me he was you know playing guitar and in a band i instinctively knew that it was just not it was going to be something special i went with him that day my mom literally came to pick me up and i sent her away and i went with him and he was he was actually living not that far. He was living on Wilshire and Crescent Heights at the time. And just coincidentally, the drummer that was in his band, Adam Greenberg, I knew from John Burroughs Junior High School, who, you know, he hooked up with him a few years later. But so I already knew him. And I, the bass player, Ronnie Schneider, I didn't know. But I sat there and I, he plugged into this, his, his uh, BC Rich Mockingbird into his son amp. And... They were playing like Heaven and Hell and, you know, some cover songs, Zeppelin, Aerosmith. Uh, they had a couple originals, but it was just insane that the sound that he was getting, because I was playing guitar, too. And when I, I, I said, here, let me play that guitar. That sounds really good. You know, in between this, you know, whatever, after rehearsal, I plug in, I play. <laughs> Doesn't sound that good to me. But when he was playing, he was getting that guitar with controlled feedback. You know, it's the way you play it. And, and it, it's you know, years later, I, I saw that again in him when he played at the kibitz night and he dropped in here on, they used to have Tuesday night jams. He didn't bring any equipment and there was some crappy green strat on the stage that, you know, that was probably a $200 strat that was bought a year before that. And that it plugged into who knows what amp and he picked it up, fuddled a little bit with the, you know, with the tones and they, they were jamming and, you know, all of a sudden you hear slash. Now, Slash is not known for playing out of a Strat. What does he play? Dustin Bones with a Strat, which is cool. But, he, you know, he, you think of Slash, you think of a Les Paul. And that, that sound he gets. But he was getting that sound out of, the, out of the Strat. So it's really, it's the guitar. Sure, the Les Paul helps. And the amp certainly helps. But 
he was getting it without it. You know, he, he, he was doing it. So back to that rehearsal, they would play a blues song or something else. And he was, I was getting goosebumps, you know? And so right away I was sucked in and I used to document him racing bikes, you know, taking pictures and, you know, that stuff. So I started taping those rehearsals and, and taping those, you know, anytime they played a party and I wasn't taking pictures yet. Cause that, that ties back into Jack Lou. How, you know, we were talking about Jack Lou earlier, and he's the mm-hmm. one that influenced me to take photos. Jack Lou was a friend of mine since 1979, and we'd go to concerts, and he would always take the best photos. And uh, one concert was in, uh, it was Alan Holdsworth playing the April of 82, and Jack couldn't, and, and we knew that Eddie Van Halen was going to be there. We got word through the grapevine and might play a song with him for the encore. So, Jack wanted to shoot it, but couldn't because he had a uh, his day job had a, a night job for him that day. So, uh, or he had to leave town. I forgot what it was, but he handed me his camera, put a load of film, film a roll of film, set it to the settings that he thought would work for that show, and just told me shoot a roll off, see what happens. And I shot a roll off, and I got one money shot. The rest were okay, but they were a little fuzzy or whatever. And right away, that one shot was enough of Eddie Van Halen to. Um, influenced me to steal my sister's Canon AE-1 that was just sitting in her closet that my mom probably bought her for a photography class she took in high school. And um, so I already, I already knew. I, I knew which what, what speed film, 400 speed film, do this, do, you know, set the, open the lens. So I, lear- I wasn't a photographer, but I, I learned what Jack showed me for that gig and I used that. And it was hit and miss. A lot of, well, the first shot I, sh- the first time I shot Slash was at well, slash playing guitar anyways, was at Fairfax High School. And that was June. You're going to say I have a photographic memory, but I know this because I have prints from those shows. And I, so I know the date because I like to put where it was at and the date. So I've done that so many times that they're, they're uh, in my hard drive now. So that That's was June 4th, 1982. My grandpa June. used to do that in the back of every photo. He would write the date. I mean, it's such a lost art, but yeah. yeah. Well, I write it up front actually when, People do the fine art photos. They put, they number them one to a hundred or whatever, and then they sign it. They number it on the left. They sign it on the right. I number it, and then I give you as much possible uh, information. This is the first time played Welcome to the Jungle, or this is the debut of Paradise City. You know, if there's something that happened to that gig, I like to write that because it get, makes it a little bit more special. But anyways, um, so that's why all these dates are in my head. I shot that show. It was a day show. It was daytime at you know lunch break at school, Fairfax High School. And you don't need the camera. Every picture came out because there, you're not fighting lighting. You're not fighting when if the red lights are on, it's not going to work. You got to wait for the yellow lights. There was just daylight. So I blew off that roll of film and won a song. And uh, every one of those pictures came out. And that was it. I never looked back. I shot everything. I, you know, after that, I, I brought my camera to all the shows with Jack and we shot together. But of course, I shot uh, Slash was doing so. I, I shot some rehearsals. I shot all those gigs. So I, I kind of followed Slash. I knew the importance of it. I knew 100% sure he was going to make his living playing guitar. And and uh, I knew I, and it, it was exciting to me. And that's why I taped it. But I also knew I was documenting. And it wasn't just Slash. It was Slash until I met the rest of them. And then I saw they each brought something to the table. It wasn't all Slash was, the, you know, the monster. And the rest of them are just, you know, here for the ride. I, it was it was equal amount of energy coming. The, when the first time I shot that Appetite for Destruction lineup on June 6th at the Troubadour, you know, you, 
if, if you're a photographer and you're looking at things, sometimes you don't pull the trigger if you don't like what you see. I pointed the camera at Izzy, I'm shooting. I pointed to Steven, I'm shooting. I pointed at Duff, I'm shooting. I obviously, shot, Slash always looks good. Axel's flying around stage, I'm shooting him. I it just, I shot four rolls of film and they only had like a 30 minute, 35 minute set. And I didn't even have a rewinder yet. I, I had a, every time I shot it, I had to flick it with my finger to, you know, reset. Uh, everything looked good you know so you had all and then when i saw how they were writing songs the first song they wrote together was welcome to the jungle and that was just the way you hear it on the record is the right down to the guitar solo is the way i heard it the first time they played it you know same guitar solo same everything so it was arranged produced you know it was it was like wow that's like that's that's like a Les Zeppelin. That's you know these guys they they can't do wrong. That was just one song, and that you know they already had "Don't Cry" and a few others. So you know that there was it was working, and then two months later, Rocket Queen was debuted at the Troubadour and was um, when was that? That was September, uh, yeah, September twentieth, and that song just like you hear it on the record was the same way it was played that night, right down to every guitar solo that's in it. So. Slash would hear that melody, it would influence, Axel's voice would influence it, and it would come out, and he ripped it out out of just winging it, and it worked, and so he remembered it, and it, it just stuck the next time they played it, the next time they played it. Time to record, he's going to play it, because it's part of the song. So, um, you know, then came Paradise City a couple months later, then, then all of a sudden, you know, my, uh, not my Michelle, Night Train came in, in December, two weeks later, they had my Michelle. There was no throwaways. Every song they did, it's like you hear it on the record and it didn't need any, any arranging. Uh, it, was, it was, so at that point, I knew that this is absolutely going to work, not just Slash, but all of them as a team effort. And as long as they don't die, or some of them die, or one of them dies, or get thrown in jail, or you know whatever, or or you know they could break up too because even though they are creating good music, there was you know th there's issues sometimes, and there was a lot of stress that, that you know four of them were living in that studio that's not a live-in studio really, uh, and Duff was living with his girlfriend, but you know sometimes they didn't all live there if they if they hooked up with somebody or they had a girlfriend for a short time, but still they're getting chased by the police that you know some girl turned them in for this or that. And so it gives them material, then they write out to get me. So they're writing about what's going on. I mean, Izzy hooked up with Rod Stewart's girlfriend. Uh, and I, I wasn't even hanging out with Izzy at the time, although he, I sort of was because he was here at Canners writing with Tracy. But um, she dropped him off at the, where they were hanging out at that studio. And he sat down, you know, after they hooked up, he sat down on, on the cement curb there and wrote th the lyrics to think about you. So they're writing about what's going on, you know, at that time. And so um, the material was real, you know, it's not like they have to make shit up and write, or they saw a TV show or a movie and they influenced to write this or write that. It's they're writing their own, they were writing their own, you know, their life. They're, it was, this, you know, a biography of what was going on. So it, it worked, you know, they had the right sound. Axel's got five octaves of, or whatever you want to call it, registers of, 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 of voice registers. And, you know, they look good, they sound good, they are good. Yeah, they had everything going for them. So the, the thing was, my job 
was to document it, but also at the same time, make it a little easier for them to get to the next gig. Help them put an ad in their magazine to get a bigger crowd there. Help them buy some flyers. Help pay for maybe a demo tape, a pack of guitar strings. I actually bought Slash's Wawa pedal. Um, he had a Wawa pedal in the early 80s, but it you know, broke or disappeared. But I, uh, right before it was his birthday, right before he wrote Brownstone. So his birthday was in July, and, and Brownstone showed up you know, a month later. So, uh, and also Scout showed up then too. So uh, I don't know if I want to take credit for that, but I did buy it. I did buy it. But I think that's important. It's something you said early on are these ancillary characters. Like, yeah, you maybe want to hear from the rock star, the people that wrote the song. No, it's the people that you've interviewed for Reckless Road and for 51st gigs, the people that like yourself that were there. And if you're not asking them to recall 30 years of their life, it's one year. So I'm curious because uh, I believe you interviewed Steve Darrow on one of your episodes, right? Yes. I'm wondering if you can add to because he wasn't sure he doesn't want to take credit to it uh, for it that he named Axel Axel when they were trying to come up with another name. Do you know anything about that story when they were trying to come up with possibly naming the band after Hollywood Rose Axel? And he's like, why don't you well, just call yourself Axel? Any, do you know anything, uh, anything more about that? What, what, from what I from what I remember and what I even what I don't know, but I research that. Uh, the, the word AXL was was Axel's band. When Chris Weber joined up with Izzy and Axel, the band was called AXL. But here's the weird thing. Axel was still going by Bill Bailey. Then. So I don't know if he was actually going by the, the name Axel. So it might have been something he was thinking of changing his name to, and that's why they named the band AXL. But so anyways, it ended up being Rose and then turned into Hollywood Rose. And Steve Darrell was not in Rose or Hollywood Rose. Steve Darrell became in the new Hollywood Rose and entered Hollywood. See, when I saw Hollywood Rose at Gazzari's, they played a three-song set for a battle of the band. Slash and Steven were with me. And Steve Darrell was not the bass player. It was a, it was this guy that I went to Beverly Hills High School with, uh, uh, what's the name? Trucks, something trucks. I, I forgot his uh, uh, Andre Trucks. So, mm -hmm. but that band fell apart right then after that night. And when they put when they when Slash and Steven joined the band, Chris Weber was out, Steve Darrell came in. So, the first the first time Steve Darrell played with Hollywood Rose, the name was already Hollywood Rose. And although Axel was still going. Sometimes by Bill, but he had, when I met Axel, I met him as Axel, and I met him in May of '84, the same time that that Steve Darrow met him. So I don't know if Steve, if Steve, if if uh, when Hollywood Rose, when Steve Darrow was joining Hollywood Rose, it, at that time Axel might have been saying, "I'm maybe we should change the name to AXL because I want to. I, I think I want to go with Axel. That's what I'm going to call myself." That could have happened because the first time I knew of Hollywood Rose. We had that demo tape and we listened to it and Slash said, I would love to get Bill and Izzy in my band or join their band. And so we went to see them. When I went to see them, I thought that was Bill. After the show or the next day, I met him and he introduced himself as Axel. So I never once in my life called him Bill, but I, he, I knew of him as Bill. But mm. when I met him, he was 
instantly Axel, so I always called him Axel. So he changed his name right about then. So it's possible Steve Daryl might have helped him. Hey, dude, that's cool. You should go with Axel. He, he might have changed. He might have, Axel might have been on the fence about it. And then Steve Daryl could have easily talked him into changing his name to, to Axel. That, it, that, that's, it sounds right. This is what's good about doing uh, sleuthing, internet sleuth or documentaries. You get to really break it down and discover and you, you get the fact and the timeline and everything is great. So has there been a favorite episode of yours that you've done so far of the 51st gigs? Are there going to be 50 episodes? I guess, how does it, how are you going about releasing it? Well, okay. So that's a good question. I, I think there's, I, I could be off by one or two, but I think there's 12 or 14 episodes for, for the first season. Yeah. And there's also bonus episodes. And uh, bonus episodes are episodes that Jason doesn't think are strong enough to make it into an episode but they're important enough to keep it in there. So they become thrown in bonus episodes. There might be four or five bonus episodes in first season. First season takes you from the, you know, from basically how it all began, any of them playing in Los Angeles to the day they end up back at Canner's Deli after they came back from Hell Tour. So the Appetite for Destruction lineup plays one gig at the Troubadour goes up north. Their car breaks down, so that becomes Hell Tour. And then they play one gig in Seattle. So now they got two gigs in their pocket. And they come back to, to Canners to take a publicity shot at this famous booth now because you can see what makes that shot so good is if you look at them, they all have they all know in their eye that they got it. And this is it. This is the lineup that's gonna it's gonna work because they suffered together. They already knew they were good musicians. But they're now blood brothers because they lived through this hell of getting to Seattle and, and what it took to get there. So the look on their face is like, yeah, we got it. We're here. We're going to take this picture to get, you know, on a flyer for our next gig, which is at the Stardust Ballroom at the end of that month. And, um, you know, that was that was that was basically it. So that, that that's the first season. Now, the second season all that's going to happen in the second season or the third or the fourth and even the fifth is we're going to continue to the next event, which is the next gig, which that gig at the Stardust Ballroom. And so we're going to talk about that gig. We're going to talk about what was going on around that gig. Uh, you know, Vicki Hamilton booked them for that gig, even though she wasn't managing them. So they had to deal with Vicki as a booker. So, you know, you're going to get tidbits of all these people that were involved in that. And, and, you know, we might have an interview some of the members from the bands that they played with. They played with the Unforgiven that night and they were the headliners. So what maybe do they remember their opener? And do they realize that that band became you know famous or, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's sometimes interesting because there could be stories that are left on the, that that never got told that these people that played gigs with them might remember. So it's just cool. His, I know it sounds like you're fishing for something, but you'd be surprised what, what you can come up with. And uh, if nothing else, you're going to get extra photos that didn't make it into Reckless Road. And you're going to get a little video footage, you know, uh, intertwined in there. And you're just going to get people comedy. What did they do that night? They debuted Mama Ken. So even though it's not their song, it is the first time they debuted it. So, you know, and then 
just what what was going on at that time in their lives and and you're going to get that then you're going to go to the next gig and you know the next gig was uh, at at um madame wong's east and they played in front of four people on on the july 4th nobody was there it was just their girlfriend so you know you're you're going to get that. So you're just going to move. And then they recorded their demo tape. You're going to get how that was made. So the episodes will be to determine, but all we're doing is following the history line and what may show up. And, and when we hit season two, it's because it might be 12 or 14 episodes. And then that's it. That's season two where it ends. I don't know. And then we'll hit season three, but we, we, we speculate that it'll be about five seasons. If we get all the way through from the, the, the start, you know, the genesis of this to when it didn't matter anymore because, you know, they took off with the cult and, you know, they went on tour and what, you know, in the last episode, you're going to find out that, okay, so they toured what they got put on the tour at the cult. Nobody really knew who they were. You know, they came to see the cult and there was this band Guns N' Roses. Who are they? Well, after in each city that they played in, you're going to hear Tom Zutat talk about uh, records were sold the next day in those record, you know, those local record stores. So there was this little underground buzz going on. And every time they'd play a city, records would be sold in that city. And, you know, eventually without any airplay or, or other than like KNEC, uh, and no MTV, uh, you know, support, they sold 200,000 copies. And then, you know, when MTV started playing them and that was a whole nother story, that could be a whole episode in itself. Uh, And we had, you know, uh, Geffen Records had to bend their arm backwards to play the song and they agreed, okay, we're going to play one time on a Sunday night at, you know, two in the two in the morning, L.A. time, you know, five in the morning, New York time, because we don't want to get help from sponsors that we played these guys that have this rape band cover and bad, you know, bad, you know there's bad reputations that they, they just didn't want to deal with that, but they did it as a favor. And of course the, the switchboards blew up. Hey, who's that? Play that song again. And then they were thrown into top 10, 10 rotation, like within two or three days from that. And the rest is history. You know, they were selling 200,000 records a week at some point after that because of MTV. So that's why MTV- it's great to get your story because it's, it wasn't an overnight thing where they exploded and how long it took it for it to happen. And that you were just if, if you have all the little details, it's not just like, hey, I was here for the first, you know, the incarnation of it. The fact that, again, you're, you were there for moments that Slash doesn't remember or, you know, Axel may not remember that you were there in the front lines to get these stories from the people that you may not hear from all the time, like Steve Weber, like a Vicky Hamilton. So that's that's great. And fans do love it. They really do, especially, you know, I, I have to say it, it's from a band that doesn't give us a lot. You know, we don't have an, we don't know a lot from their history. So we're forced to watch, you know, Riddle's documentaries, things that are sensationalistic. So when we do get things from you that are, you know, people that were there, it's it's like it's gold to us. We know it's real. We know it's valid. And it's yeah. more than I, we ever got before. You know, I've been involved in some of those sensationalized things where, you know, they come to make a, doc- a little six minute documentary on how my, how I documented Guns N' Roses and. They film it so well and they do such a good job on it. And then somebody, uh, you know, in the main office gets a hold of it and says, hey, let's go to town with this. And we're going to say we we found the guy that could get Guns N' Roses back together. And uh, they, they label it, you know, I don't I don't know if you remember this, but it was like six, seven years ago. And uh, the funny I thing is, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Blurb, took one blurb that that was 100 percent 
authentic, but they nicked the whole video after that. And and it was, we went back to the studio where they first rehearsed it. And it was like two o'clock in the morning. I, my voice was shot because they'd interviewed me since eight in the morning. All, and we went to different places. They were so thorough. We went to the Troubadour. We went to Tower Video. And I said the same things in the, with this, while I was driving, they videotaped me in the mirror, like literally. So they did all these cool effects. And they asked me the same questions 8 million times, but just to get different backgrounds with it. So anyways, my voice was shot. I was pissed off. It was like two in the morning. And he says, what would it take to get these guys back together? And I was like, what would it take? You know, get rid of the bullshit, put them there, no management, put those five guys in that room. And that's what it would take. You know, I was like, you know, that was like pure emotion. And then what do they do? They take it and they name it as if I'm the guy that could get them back together. It had nothing to do with getting them back together. It, it was just, they asked me that question and it was a fair question. And I gave them the right answer. And it's true what I gave them at that time anyways. And, and um, you know, as soon after the joke of it was, Slash had already reunited with, with Axel. And I wasn't even aware of it. And that's the joke oh. of it. That's that's what made it funny. They were already back together before we were filming that event. And I didn't even know it. And um, I mean, soon the world found out about it, you know, a couple months after that. But that was that that's what made it so funny because everyone said, hey, you did a good job. You got them back together. No, I didn't get them. Back together. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. I was just actually perusing that documentary before and going to ask you how you feel about it now. You know, Guns N' Roses, just they finished their last uh, tour date after six successful years of, of touring. And, you know, you were you weren't like Andrew Dice Clay or Fred Durst that claimed to take into credit for getting them back together. But still, just to get your opinion, of, again, to somebody who was there from the infancy to now to see where they all they're all alive. <laughs> you know, we Joe, you were laughing about it before. If they all live, they'll make it. Well, no, they're, I, they're all that, alive. the joke of it is that I but not to get them back together. That documentary was just a, a little documentary on how I decided to do what I did. Mm-hmm. But the, the joke of it was for 12 years, I did try to get them back together publicly in an intervention on on chat boards and on any interview I did, I was talking to Axel. They would ask me a question and answer it as if I was looking in Axel's eyes. And most of it was like, yes, they just need some, like a family therapist to, to hear their things because I know their gripes each one of their gripes. And I knew that there was no one shot each other's mother. You know, it was, these were, these were, these are things that could easily be fixed uh, by the right, you know, just getting together. And I was, I was just in, in, in it just every single day on it, getting this information out, hoping that Axel would look at it. And uh, it turns out they weren't letting him look at it. And so he, I was kind of wasting my time. But it doesn't matter. I died with my boots on. I, I, I did it for the right reasons. And, uh, and at least I was also helping a lot of fans that were fighting, blaming things. It was Flash's fault. It was Axel's fault. I said, it's no fault. There's no bad guy here. They just disagreed on some things. But, it, 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 you know. Um, I thank I, you for that. The fans thank you for that because. We weren't getting much, even as somebody. Yeah, I was happy with Axel's version. I, I never, I didn't get to see Slash and Axel on stage together, unlike you. But I didn't see it for the first time until the reunion. So I thought it was never going to happen. So for someone like you or Doug Goldstein that takes time to talk at the to talk to fans, I think it's it's important. We understand that there's 
you know, you're not with the man now and there's some sort of a stiff arm with some uh, with people in the past with the current incarnation of it. But I think what you do to take time to talk to the fans, to a band, the people about the band that you love, their friends that you love. Uh, we don't take that for granted. That's why people are excited to hear from you again today. You know what? Deep inside, Axel feels that way, too. If you listen to uh, Get in the Ring, there's some lyrics about he's talking about Bob Guccione Jr. or whatever, yeah. uh, ripping up the kids to learn about that paid their hard earned money to learn about the bands they want to know about. Just take that line about. And, and so there was actually a time when Doug Goldstein called me. I don't know, maybe 88, 89, somewhere like that from while they were on the road. And he said, Axel wants to hire you to look through. Yeah, it was right around the time of that uh, to look through all the magazines and see what's uh, and, and, and let them know, let management know or let somebody know what's bullshit, you know, about you know, sometimes you do an interview and they twist the words and they, they sensationalize it and they they. You know, if you do a video interview, it, it is what it is. But if you do an audio interview and they print it, there's always little somebody gets in there and screws it up. But so Axel was like, didn't like that shit. When you, t you, you say something and then it, you read it uh, two weeks later and it's not exactly what you said. And they, they not only that, they've twisted it to make it look oh. like you said something else. The contact, sure. So anyway, they did that with me. They twisted my words to make it look like I'm there trying to get the band back together, which... I was, but I was, that wasn't why we made that video. But anyways, long story short, Doug says, I don't know how you're going to know what, what's right or wrong because you weren't there when the interviews were being done. But he said, Axel said you would know <laughs> because <laughs> I, because I, I he, Axel was betting on that. I would know whether they said that or they didn't say that, even though I wasn't there because Axel knew that I knew them better than they knew themselves, mm -hmm. you know, so anyways, I said to Doug, look, I, I, no one's going to hire me to do that. I, I'll, I'll look at I'm collecting all those magazines anyways. I'll look through them. If I see something that I don't like, I'll let you know. But you don't have to pay me for it. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll help you out. But anyways, it went away. I didn't really have to do that. You know, at, at some point, Axel changed his mind or whatever. But uh, it, what I'm getting at is the Axel knew when I was doing this, he knew exactly what, you know, Slash was used to me with the camera always, so he didn't pay much attention. But Axel understood that I was that I was documenting for the right reasons. And they had a gig at the Central once. You might even see some of the video on YouTube. And the sound man told me I couldn't videotape. And I went up to Axel. I said, hey, the sound man's not letting me videotape. And he said, oh, yeah, then we won't play. So uh, he knew what I was doing. He knew that important to document this. And, you know, there was a couple of disagreements that they had, you know, bands fight, of course. And I didn't get that on video because I just wasn't, I was only really documenting the gigs. I wasn't looking for backstage, uh, you know, what was going on backstage. I was just, I might have a little footage from backstage fooling around, but for the most part, um, I videotape any of their fights, you know? And um, Axel once said, he almost wished I had just so they had it, they had it documented that they had a fight and worked it out, you know, whatever. But so, you know, it's just that the people running things now, <laughs> they just have everything on lockdown. They don't do interviews and, and, you know, they have their own agenda behind that and that's their business. They can do what they want. My, you can't change history. I'm not documenting what they're doing now. I'm happy what they're doing now. And it's being documented by, you know, thousands of people with their iPhones in the crowd. 
you know, basically videotaping or doing whatever they're doing. But uh, there's no secrets what's going on now. They're on tour and they're playing. That's it. But nobody knows what was going on or how this. A lot of people want to know that the history is very important. How did my favorite band that gets me through my day sometimes or when I'm having a bad day, how did they write this song? Why did they, you know, what what influenced them to do? Oh, is that girl that did the, you know, what? So there, there's, it's important to get that stuff up. Now, I'm not obsessed with getting this stuff out. I just happened, I was obsessed in capturing it to make sure I caught it. It was not my job to get it out. It was my job to capture it. I'm not going to let it go to waste. But, uh, and I, if nothing else, I like it. So it's for me. Let's say the whole world didn't like Guns N' Roses. That's great. I got it. But it turned out they got, the world did like Guns N' Roses, um, just like I said, because I compared them to Led Zeppelin, which, by the way, is not my favorite band. But I, I understand that Led Zeppelin is probably the best band. So, and I know what, for the, what the reasons why, you know, that what music they created and there was no throwaway music. And so, anyways, I, as far as I was concerned, documenting Led Zeppelin, I just in, in Guns N' Roses. So, anyways... I have it. And yes, my goal was to get it out with Reckless Road. We didn't have the right, you know, we went independent publisher instead of a real publisher. And we didn't, we failed in getting the message out because, uh, you know, we sold maybe 50,000 copies after 12 years. And we should have sold, you know, a million copies or more because any fan that's a bet that, that's going to pay $375 to go see them now would pay, you know, uh, $25 for a book, a treasure trove of, of the first 50 gigs. Mm -hmm. So it, it just didn't, the word didn't get spread out right. So, but we do have the information and, you know, COVID hit and which made this project happen. So that's why we're doing this. So you, if you go to 50, for, 50 what is it? 51st. Yeah. The, the first 50 gigs.com, you could get information, sign up and, and it's a, it's a podcast and it, and you guys have, uh, as and, and as you're you're slowing down again, I'll fill in the gap. You guys have a uh, an Instagram, which is back up now. You have a Facebook a and a Twitter. <laughs> oh, um, like fifteen. I think there's a twenty-five dollar things, and then okay. those get yeah, they get displayed, and you get a few like maybe some shirt memorabilia, not not original memorabilia, but maybe reproduced. I don't know. Jason's taking care of that stuff, and he's in charge of sending or a free book you might get a signed book uh but uh the 15 is a great one because that gets you basically the podcast with all the video footage the extras um and so you know it's a cool little you we need that fee not because we we want to you know get rich on that fee we need that fee because these things have like 20 people working behind them putting them together editing them and these people aren't necessarily it's not in their blood to me i'll do anything for free uh, to get it out there. These people are professionals and they, they get, they need to get paid for their time to get this information out there. So it's, no one's making money off this, but it's kind of like a, a, a go me thing. You know, it, it keeps a little money in flowing, which keeps us able to hire the people that are producing it and, 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 you know, editing it and doing all that stuff. So I hear it's, I guess it's, it's a GoFundMe, basically. <laughs> so, there, um, as I, and if you're watching on Zoom, I change. I just realized today that Cantor's was featured in Mad Men. I, I watched that during the for the first time during the pandemic. So I have a Mad Men Cantor's Deli background right now. I don't know. If, I don't <laughs> yep. know if you, can, you, know, uh, you know, they loved they loved filming here because their art department looked and they looked around and they said, "Okay, we're ready to go." <laughs> 
they, didn't have, they, they, they changed like two pictures on the wall. They didn't have to change the furniture. We even had menus back from the fifties or sixties when, it, you know, when that time was was there. So we just they didn't even have to reproduce the menu. We literally threw down the menu that was used at that time. So uh, oh, any time there's a timepiece filmed here, they love it because it fits. You know, <laughs> we don't. Do- then we ask them before uh, we get it here. Let's see. This is another one I got. Yeah, this is from Entourage, right? Yeah, that's Entourage. Yeah. Yeah, Cantor's. Okay, so I mean, it's the more. I just want to show it's more than just Guns and Roses. You were more. You have so much there. And once, uh, I swear, I will make it there one day. I I have a turkey sandwich with my name on it. But I think it's 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 such a great thing what you're doing now, and you can tell your heart is in the right place with all of it. And I love, you know, fans love talking with you. I think this is a great new thing. It is really, it is Reckless Road come to life. And it's great that it's, it's, it's not just a podcast. It's like what I'm doing now. You can listen to it or you can watch it. Right. And I guess the only question is, and I guess it might be a difficult one, any chance the music sees a lot of day? Because I know that's a whole other um, issue. It's one thing if you, the photographs that you have ownership of, but well, uh, that- you hear the songs uh, from these first 50 gigs ever. That's great area because... Some a lot of that was recorded before they were signed, and I did have permission to document it. And you can't. There's certain loopholes and certain things. So you, if we wanted to force it, of course we could. But but we're not for trouble uh, to fight with uh, copyrights and, and uh, with people okay. like. So, but we did ask the band officially uh, if they want to get involved in the podcast or allow us to. Sorry, it's slowing down again. So you asked the band officially if they wanted to be a part of it. This would be a fun episode to listen back. To. <laughs> Mark is frozen in one way. Okay, it's okay. I'm going to pretend like this is live radio. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I don't. I don't. You sound like a. You're like a Taco Bell drive-through right now. I don't know, bud. We can pause it for a moment and see what happens. See if you come back. I hear you. Oh, well, there we go. Back yeah, to the music. Yeah, it's too difficult. <laughs> maybe this is maybe this is a, a way of uh, the universe saying that we have to cut the interview. You have to get back to get back to work. Uh, no, so no, it, it's too difficult. I want to say one more thing about the history of canners. Just throw this in there. Okay. So the history of canners goes fifty Marilyn Monroe and all that. But even Elvis was here. But be, but forget about that. The the only story I'm going to tell is um, a Neil Young story. So in 1966, or a little before then, Neil Young had met Stephen Stills, but Stephen Stills wasn't famous yet, in Canada somewhere. And they bumped into each other somewhere and they, they, they hit it off a little knew that they could work together one day. And, but Stephen Stills went back to LA, said, if you ever come to LA, you know, look me up, try to find me, you know, we'll put something together. So Neil Young decides to move here in 1966. He's driving a hearse to carry his equipment in, you know, instead of a van. And he gets to L.A. and realizes that L.A. is, you know, 700 times bigger than he thought. And he's not able to find Stephen Stills. And um, he's looking for him. But while he's looking for him, he decides he's going to work by taxing patrons of Canner's Deli to the Sunset Strip back and forth for a dollar a ride. So our unofficial Uber driver. And uh, that for a while. And uh, people, the funny thing is this ties into someone at, Someone I know told me, why was there always a hurt? When I was a kid, you know, this guy's older than me. He said, when I was a teenager, I'd go to Canners. And every time we'd go there, there'd be a hearse. Ride. And we'd have this joke that, what, if people are dropping dead and they have to drive them, you know, with the hearse. But 
it, it took 30 years later to, or more to figure out it was Neil Young, because Neil Young told this story once Rolling Stone, and I, it all pieced together to me. But then he eventually met Stephen Stills by accident on the street. And, uh, the, you know, he was on his way, actually. He, he had saved enough money from working as our Uber driver. To, he was going to San Francisco to try to start something because he gave up on Stephen Stills. And then he met Stephen Stills, and they, they put together Buffalo Springfield. So I'm just going to tell that story real quick, and I got it out. So there you go. <laughs> I appreciate Rock, that story. Rock, you know, but the, the, bird, the birds, you know, everybody ate here. The mamas and papas, the doors that I, I met, uh, you know, different members of the doors over the years. And, and, and they come in and they eat and they tell me stories about with Jim Morrison and, all. you know, the canners is always a fun place because the other places would sometimes, you know, think they're hippies and they're going to, you know, walk out without pain or, you know, cause trouble or smoke pot in the bathroom or and that Canners always treated them fairly. So uh, it was, Canners was known. And also we were with two places open, Ben Franks and Canners. So you only had two choices. And you know, those days the lines were out the doors in both of those places anyway. So it didn't matter. You had to pick one. I really felt like I, I missed out on something having only Ben's Deli on Long Island. I wish I had a Canners Deli. Ben's was also, okay. Also real quick, you said that turkey sandwich. Write this down. You want the Matt special. Okay. okay. The Matt special. The Matt that's special. That's the turkey sandwich that's grilled. It's grilled on egg bread with coleslaw and Russian dressing and Munster cheese. And it's it's just a really good sandwich okay. if you're a turkey lover. All right. Hold on that uh, for me until I get there. <laughs> I don't know. One of these days, Mark, I will get it out. I will get uh, out there. I mean, we've been traveling a lot, my fiance and I. So, um, And I've been having her do the Guns N' Roses road trip. She's uh, more of a Dave Matthews fan, but I've got her to see Guns N' Roses four times in the last, you know, year. Listen, I, I I talk to fans from all over the world that come here, and if I can, I give them five minutes to, you know, tell them a few stories. But one time, I absolutely had nothing to do, and these four people were, were so dedicated, and they mapped them out. Their houses were this, and I started to map it down on, you know, there's a map in Reckless Road that gives you that, but it, you know, it's, it's kind of animated. So I kind of like was giving them directions and I said, you know what? I said, let's go. I threw them in my car and I gave them the Reckless Road tour of the city of, of the Guns N' Roses spots. And, and I've only done that once. And these people, and you're not even going to believe this if I tell you this, but I have a Guns N' Roses pinball machine that they gave me in 19, 1994. I even right. took them to the house and let them play the machine. <laughs> that, yeah. That's how, I was, but I had nothing going on and I thought, you know, let's have some fun with this and make their day, make their, you know, a good, you do a good deed for somebody, you're rewarded by no one else happy, you know, that sometimes that's how, that's the reward, you know, that you made someone else a little happier. So, you know, that's wow. what it is. This whole project is a labor of love. It's a labor of love. And I, I love getting the information out if I can to get it to people. And, and I'm proud of that time and I'm proud of the photographs that I got and and you know you put them up in your wall and you know it, it's a piece of art so it, it really was a special time awesome and I, I'll end here because Doug Goldstein says hi because I'm, I'm helping him write his book currently and he said something very similar to you just now how he will randomly talk to fans like in a Facebook messenger just for a few minutes just to make them happy he's like knowing that I made their day makes me feel good. And that's exactly what you just said to me. Goldstein, Doug Goldstein was the Jedi Knight of the Jedis. Okay. He was the Matt. He was Yoda. There was nobody 
even close. If you take the top 10 people that, that to, can, you know, manage a band, he was the road manager at the time before he was manager, that could do that, fill that job. And you say, well, list them here. And, you know, Led Zeppelin's guy, this guy, that guy. You have Doug, and then you have six blank spots. And the number seven might be somebody that worked for Led Zeppelin or somebody. Doug was just on top of his game. Not only was he the road manager, if somebody threw something on stage, like a bottle or something, something wet, Doug would dive there, clean that up. Not the roadie on the side of the stage. If Axel jumped in the crowd, it wasn't the roadie that jumped in. It was Doug Goldstein that jumped in and risked everything for. If there was a girl that ended up on the tour bus and ended up in the next city, I remember I was on the bus with them. We, okay, so we, we, my wife and I flew out to Giant Stadium to see which turned out to be the Paradise City video shoot in 88. And of course, why was I going? Because Aerosmith was there and who else? Wow, Deep Purple. You can't beat that lineup. So we flew out there, but we didn't have plans on going with them to the next gig. And the next gig was in Washington or somewhere. Was it Washington? I think it was in Washington. And um, they said, hey, you want to come? And I said, all right. And so we, but we had a rent a car and I'm like, I, I got it. What am I going to do? He said, give me the keys. He gets on his walkie talkie, says two words to somebody. Someone comes running over, he gives him the keys. And now that car has been returned. I'm on the bus. We, we there was only one spot left to sleep. So my wife and I was, yeah, it was my wife. at the, No, it wasn't my wife. It was my girlfriend at the time. We, we slept in this little bunk that if you've ever seen in a tour bus, is not even really made for one person, but two people slept in that. Anyways, long story short, the next morning, we're in the next city. I think it was Washington. No, it was in Maryland. It was Maryland. And um, <laughs> I see Doug Goldstein pull out 200 bucks, you know, pull out a wad of cash and peel off 200 bucks, hand to this. Uh, oh, you're coming out on the good part. It's cutting out of the park. Doug was done with that girl. He didn't want, you know, he had, a, he wanted to make sure she got back to wherever the hell's from. And, and uh, he just exactly. like, just so, so sharp. He was just right on it. There was no way. And I'm, I'm going to say one more funny story. When they played, okay, so Doug was fired on the road and I, while they were probably with Alice Cooper. And they actually fired Colin, the previous manager. And, uh, so, you know, on a whim, they got Doug Goldstein and I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was. And so they were playing Perkins Palace four nights uh, coming back to Los Angeles at the end of 87. And um, I just, for whatever reason, they got me a pass or whatever, and, and, but I didn't have a laminated pass. So I couldn't go backstage or I don't know, whatever it was. They gave me his tickets to get in, but they didn't hook me up properly. And um, so I just made my own pass. I saw where the passes were. And what it was is that the inside, they actually literally took the inside cover of the Appetite for Destruction tape. They cut it with the scissors and laminated it. That was the backstage pass. So I made one for me and my wife. And not only that, they put a picture of you, you know, laminated in it with it, right? And the back part of it. So I did it. I come, we walk in, I guess this in backstage. It was the next day, the first day we got screwed. But the next day I walk in there and you know, we're, we're just walking, mind our own business. And this guy comes running like, like, like he, like a radar. And he knew we weren't supposed to be there because he didn't know who the hell we were. And we had passes and he shot right to us, grabbed the pass, turned it over. And it was like, he couldn't believe there was a picture of us. And he was like, who are you? Cause he, any pass he would have made. And he was like, how'd you do this? And, and I said, I'm Slash's friend, blah, 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 blah. Oh, Mark Canner, I know who you are. 
how'd you do this? And I told him he was, he just couldn't believe that I was that resourceful <laughs> to make my own pass. But, but after that, you know, we, we, after that, I've always, I always had a pass for, the, <laughs> they have to worry about backstage passes, but uh, Doug was just, you know, right on top of his game. There was just, the band would have fallen apart or gone to jail or all of the above if he wasn't there handling everything that was going wrong. And he, he was, the, the, you know, there's a show about that. What's that guy now? Uh, what's his name? Uh, God, I know you know the show. It's like on HBO. Uh, hmm. Problem solver guy. Problem solver it, guy. It'll come to me. It doesn't matter. Because uh, I don't have HBO. Ray some, uh, Ray, oh, Ray Donovan? What's his name? Ray some. Ray Donovan? Yes. He was the, he, yeah. I know all yes. this. Oh, Showtime. So he was, he's the problem solver, right? You got a problem, he yeah. solves your problem. Doug Goldstein was solving problems constantly, constantly. Yeah. Just right on it, right on it. Me being right on, on it. Hitting, hitting the, me hitting being, the nail on the head every time. <laughs> now me being where you were and Jack and Lou was, you know, riding Reckless Road on the cutting room floor, seeing all the stories, and I'm, I can't wait for it to get it out, you know, down the road. I, all right, so I'm on your side of the fence now, but I, I really appreciate what you've been doing for – for fans and for, you know, the hungry patrons for all these years. Uh, it's a pleasure. I didn't expect you to keep you uh, this long, but you know, you're once you get off on a story, I just want to shut up and let you finish and, and, and hear it. So there's just too many stories. So I hope there's more than five seasons, but if, if it's only five, we'll take it. That's okay. There was only, uh, People always ask, what's your favorite story? They're looking for like the backstage dirt. I said, there is no backstage dirt. The favorite story is, the goosebumps I got from the music or from this gig or from that gig. That, that's my favorite story. When they, when they pushed the, putting a crowd over that wasn't there to see them or, you know, debuting a song. That's to me, that's, they're looking for such, you know, something that backstage with naked girls, this, that, that, that's not my favorite story. No, that, no, no. <laughs> when I asked, so I'll ask you your favorite story, but what I mean by that is what made you laugh? Is there one back there that you're like, Oh, this is such a funny moment that happened. This is just, you know, is there anything that was just a, a fond memory? Nothing sensationalistic, but something that, you know, you look back and like, oh, wow, we were young and silly or, you know, this was so funny. I saw Slash naked running. I don't this, know. This, this might not be. Well, one time. OK, I'll tell you two quick ones. One time I had a McCanners. It was Hollywood Rose. So Slash and Axel were here with their girlfriends. And, uh, you know, the food's always on the house. I, but I make it. I, I don't have anyone wait on them. I just go back there, make the food and bring it out. So I got their order back i was making the food i come out oh no i know they already had the food but i, I left because people call me they tap them hey this is that blah 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 you know when you're in canners you're working whether you like it or not so i come back to the table after being gone for like five minutes and they had they decided they were going to have a food fight and right. so there was food all over ketchup mustard burgers whatever shakes whatever they were eating was all over the they threw it all over the place and and i was really pissed because you know it's a place of business and they were horsing around and they know you don't do that you know, that gets you thrown out. So I was so pissed off that I took a whipped cream cake <laughs> that we have in the bakery and I took it and I put it right in Slash's face. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think he might because it's a whipped cream cake. That's not, that's- it, That's it's a gonna, fantasy. I want to do that much to myself. <laughs> so you can't go bad, but still it's a mess. It's in your hair, you know, Slash's hair. Try to wash that out. Good luck. <laughs> True. But, but I will tell you a funny story. It's not necessarily, Guns and Roses related, 
But I'm sure if I think about it, there will be lots of good stories to tell. But this is a me and Axel story. So uh, I had a friend when we were young that 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 was way into guns, and he and we, we he, you know we go shooting on Saturday, target shooting, not you know anything's crazy, but we go to Pasadena and we'd shoot, and so we I bought a couple of guns and whatever. So now. Axel finds out I have these guns and he wants to go shooting. So we find this place in Palmdale that it's just desert and you could, you know, bring some targets out there, the clay pigeons or whatever, and have fun, shoot bottles, whatever. So we went one time and, and you know, we had a good time. And like six months later, he, he bought this Tonka truck toy. When I say Tonka truck, he was driving it. It was like a, a, a Jeep, a souped up Jeep. You know, it was right, probably around 88 when they, they, they weren't millionaires yet, but they probably had like, you know, half a million dollars. So they had enough money to buy a good car. So anyways, he said we can, you know, we always had to leave at sundown because there's no lights out there. So, or when the sun starts to go down. So he says, I got this truck and look, I got these lights above here and we could, we could stay longer if we want because we could light it up. And so anyways, long story short, we go out there and we're in the middle of nowhere. We're miles away from anything because otherwise you can't because the bullet can come down and hurt somebody. And Axel brings these TVs that are no longer good because they broke for one, way, one reason or another. Who knows why they broke, but they broke. And, uh, you know, you always want to shoot a TV and see what happens. But anyway, so we're getting to the story now. We get out there. We have our fun. We shoot. Now we want to go home, right? We just, we're done. We want to go home. Guess what? Axel lost his keys to the car, to the truck. So now, and we don't have cell phones. We don't have beepers. We don't have anything, right? So well, we might have a beeper. That's useless because you can't call anyone. But <clears throat> any, uh, we're screwed. The sun's going down. It's getting dark. And... He doesn't, his keys are not in the car and they're not in his pocket. So now we have to double back everywhere we were walking. And it's kind of like sand and, you know, dirt and the mountains. And, you know, you are backtracking a lot of, a lot of, and we're walking here, we're walking there. It's getting dark. And my wife's great. They shot each other. They're dead or they got, you know, or they got in a shootout with somebody, you know, what's going on. You're going to be home before sundown because it gets dark and it's like, you know, eight o'clock at night. What's going on? You know, she's thinking, what the hell's going on? So and the story. So I see Axel's walking on this ridge, like a mountain ridge, and, and he's got these boots on. He's, you know, uh, cowboy boots or whatever. And I guess his the pants, his pants were in the boots, not out of the boots, but in the boots, maybe. Or, or maybe he was wearing but for whatever reason, the keys fell out of his pocket and had fallen in the boot. And he is just realizing that there's like a rock in his boot and it's bothering him. So he's reaching in his boot to like pull out this rock that's bothering him. And he comes up with the keys. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not necessarily a Guns N' Roses story, but if you tie in my wife's worrying about us and, and it's dark, it's way dark nine o'clock at night now. And, you know, if <laughs> you tie that all in, and we, and if he didn't find those keys, we would have been there just stuck. I mean, we'd have to like start walking, you know, like five or 10 miles, to get out of there to find like somebody to help us or, you know, <laughs> so that's just a, I've never I, told the story, but it just jumped in my head. Cause my wife tells it all the time. It's making fun of us, but. <laughs> I, I, I love it because it's, it's worrying. Like if my fiance is a, a half an hour, an hour late from work, I'm like, oh, she's dead on the side of the road. It's just you, you, I get the, the Jewish mother worry. So I, I understand. I understand that. And, and Axel just, you know, like everybody, where, where are my glasses? Oh, they're on my head. You know, it's like one of those situations. So 
He's just like the rest of us. Uh, Mark, I've kept you way longer than I thought I would. Thank you for your time. Unless there's anything else you uh, you want to say or it's, it's the 51st gigs. Um, and again, I think you were cutting out them, but it's on Facebook. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram. Uh, updates. You can sign and subscribe to the newsletter and get any uh, information about the, the podcast in future seasons. Right. Right. Yeah, sure. If 51stgigs.com is a place to go for all that information, so it, will, it will direct you to whatever you need to do. All right. Cool. Well, I see, I see plates. Uh, I hear plates being smacked together. So I don't know if you have to run to the kitchen and uh, take care of. Some no, 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 no. I do. I, I didn't eat yet today. So I'm I, I coming back a day after my son's wedding. I was catching up and I, so my stomach is talking to me right now. So I'm going to go have a bite. Let me say that. Mazel tub to your son. I saw those photos on Instagram. Congratulations. Uh, go have a nosh. Thank you so much, Mark, for your time. See you next time. You got it. So that was fun. I, I always tell myself, I may have said this before. I'll tell a guest, hey, maybe half hour, 45 minutes. Half hour goes by so quick. So in my head, I'm always thinking an hour. And then it's almost an hour and a half. But you never know. So I want some feedback on that. Uh, when I did the... Uh, the hard school review, which was only 20 minutes, that great numbers. Then I did the Baltimore review, the last episode, which was over two hours, also amazing numbers. So I don't know. Do you like short episodes? Do you like long episodes? I don't know. The fact that you're coming back here, I think is great. So sorry for any of the technical difficulties. I'll do my best to edit that on the audio side of it all. Um, but that's just part of the uh the game he's uh he's zooming from a from a booth in Cantor's deli and right now i have to fight off my cat from eating plastic gb no wait for me to feed you <laughs> i love it live podcasting so uh thanks for hanging out i know a lot of you are looking forward to this episode with mark Cantor, and what's great with this episode with mark and all the the upcoming episodes are guests that i've been working on for months and sometimes things just, uh, it's not always like, hey, do you want to, can I interview you? Oh, yeah, tomorrow works. That rarely happens. So Mark, I hit him earlier up this year, and he said, oh, let's get the 50 Ferris gigs off the ground, and we'll reconvene. That's what this is. And the next episode you're most likely going to hear will be with Andrew Stockdale of Wolf Mother. I've been following up on that since February. I heard back in February, oh, Andrew would love to do it. I never heard anything back since. So every few months, like uh, I'm trying to either navigate, you know, navigate between psycho ex-boyfriend or just a polite, friendly reminder. Hey, is Andrew still interested? Turns out he is. I think, as Axel says, nothing is confirmed, you know, unless it happens. Uh, so that, that should be on the way. Andrew Stockdale. So I've been working on that for months. And also another one I've been working on for a while, uh, Michael Ryan. You may not know the name, but he is a writer for Scooby-Doo. Now, if you don't know why Scooby-Doo matters, are you really a Guns N' Roses fan? That was the last time, uh, well, prior to the, I guess, reunion, we didn't see Axel for a while. Then all of a sudden we see him on an episode of, uh, of Scooby-Doo. So he's jumping from Looney Tunes to Scooby-Doo, had a Looney Tunes episode. So it looks like I'm going to have a Scooby-Doo episode of Appetite for Distortion, which is something to really look forward to. And also... I've been getting so many positive reviews and feedback and submissions for the concert reviews, which are now over because as of today, as I'm recording this, uh, GNR, are, they finished their last 
uh, tour, uh, their last leg of the tour for this year. Uh, so what I'm going to do most likely is have a few of you on for a tour review. Cause it just didn't make any sense to keep doing. I thought, cause some of the reviews leading up to when hard school was debuted. It's like, are we really going to talk about a show that doesn't have hard school yet when this is where we're, where all we're, we're talking about. So, but now there are some cool things to talk about, not just the hard school and absurd, but Wolfgang Van Halen joining uh, for Paradise City on uh, GNR on stage a couple times and just the tour overall. Um, so I think we're, I'm going to grab a few of you who have submitted and we'll do kind of a, a wrap up of this tour leg uh, review because those episodes have been so fun. So those are a, f- a few to look forward to. Right. So we got Andrew Stockdale, Wolf Mother. Uh, then we got uh, Michael Ryan from Scooby-Doo. And then we have a review episode, a, a wrap up review tour. And that's only a few, only a few of the episodes that are coming on Appetite for Distortion. So much like what Mark is doing, this is a labor of love. You know, I, I'm lucky to have an actual radio job. I have a secondary job. Uh, actually, what I'm, we're, we're selling some of my old uh, vintage toys to pay for our wedding next year. That's a story for another time. You wouldn't believe what some of these old school toys go for. Jeez. And I got to go feed my cat. He's scratching the, the couch. So anyway, uh, but it, how you can support and buy me, not buy me a new couch. We'll get a new one ourselves. You know, the, the cat has scratched up everything. We can never get a, anything nice if you have cats. Uh, is we have a Patreon. You could you can donate there. Uh, follow and subscribe. Tell friends. The more our numbers go up, you know, especially on YouTube, that's where the uh, the ad dollars come in. Or you, this is something I always want to put out there. If you, because we talk to fans across the, you know, entire work spectrum, life spectrum. If you have a business that you feel would make sense to advertise an appetite for distortion, let me know. Hit me up, Facebook, new Twitter at the AFD Podcast, email. Uh, the AFD show at gmail.com. Anyway, I'm, um, I'll respond. I'll respond to you. And always, of course, is talking GNR. I uh, do my best to respond to all the all of you who just like the BS about GNR throughout the day in DMs. That's my life now. <laughs> anyway, so that does it for this episode of Appetite for Distortion. When will you see the next one? In the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy, you'll see it, I don't know, as soon as the word. security, I'm going home.